Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, brought to you by the APTA AMPT Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group. In this podcast, we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehab. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. My name is Kristen Cizat. And I'm Uzair Hamad. And we are your hosts. We are so excited to present today's guest. We will be speaking to Dr. Jenny Lauder about her group's paper, which is titled Task-Specific Versus Impairment-Based Training on Locomotor Performance in Individuals with Chronic Spinal Cord Injury, a Randomized Crossover Study. Dr. Jenny Lauder is a PT, DPT, and a DHS candidate, and she is a clinical and research physical therapist. She works at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana on the inpatient stroke team, as well as at the Locomotor Recovery Lab with Indiana University. She recently transitioned into the full-time research position in the Locomotor Recovery Lab. Her research projects have focused on investigating improving walking ability in people with neurologic diagnosis, and she has been involved in an implementation project on high-intensity gait training in the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana on the stroke team. She is also a member of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapies Moving Forward Task Force. And if you haven't had a chance, I'm going to put a little plug, Jenny. If you haven't had a chance to check out their um, work and their information, I highly recommend you go to the AMPT and look through some of the awesome stuff that they're putting out um, for us uh, through their through their project. I also have had the luxury of getting to go up to the lab and kind of see Jenny in action with some of the work that she's doing right now. So I'm so excited to have her. So welcome, Jenny. Welcome to Discus. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. So we want to get started kind of right away with just a little bit of background on the project. Mm -hmm. So the objective of your study, you know, looking at the differences between toxic and impairment-based interventions on walking outcomes. Could you just give us a little bit of maybe some definitions of those two terms and specifically what you guys were looking at? Sure. I think um, just to, to go with the overall premise of the, of the study was, you know, we're looking at a lot of like stepping practice is important. We see it a lot in stroke, a little bit in spinal cord. Um, and then we realize that intensity is important. And so the question is, you know, a lot of um, therapy sessions, um, in, inpatient, outpatient, there's a lot of different types of therapy being done. Um, there were a couple studies that looked at what are the patients doing during a session. And so people that were ambulatory incomplete spinal cord were doing maybe about a, 100 steps per session, and they would do about 200 non-leg movements, non-walking leg movements. And so, you know, the, the question is, what does it do that we need to do during a session to help people with incomplete spinal cord to walk better? So do we need to do a lot of stepping? Do we need to work intense? Uh, what is the, the premise behind that? What's the, the active ingredient? And so we were looking at um, task specificity, which is walking type practice um, in variable context. And then comparing that to a group that's doing more conventional or impairment-based. So looking at strength, balance, um, cardio transfers. When I was in school, you know, it's this whole idea of, well, if I work on the things that are underlying the problem, then the function will get better. Mm-hmm. So we're really kind of looking right at that. If we look at the impairments versus looking at task specificity training, which one is better with walking outcomes? Awesome. 
let's dive let's dive a little into the specifics of the participant sample um so maybe okay. age impairment scales and levels the ages time since injury and any other inclusion sure. exclusion criteria yeah so the people that were included were motor incomplete sci the asia levels were cd and we looked at t10 and above they had to be at least a year out from their injury ages 18 to 75 um, they needed to be able to walk like a 10 meter um, contact guard to no assist, but they were allowed to use their assistive device and then below knee bracing um, as needed. Um, the exclusion, oh, we also had medical clearance. And then exclusion criteria were, you know, severe lower extremity contractures that really affected walking. And then if there was um, histories of osteoporosis, cardiovascular, metabolic instability, if there are um, wounds or infections, active HO, if there was another CNS injury that affected their walking function, that they were excluded from the study. Um, we also looked at if people had Botox. And so if they had Botox um, in their lower legs, if it was like in the, in the below the knee, they had to use bracing so that we could support their their limbs, but there was a, a time frame as far as, as Botox. It had to be at least four months from their last injection, and they couldn't have it during the study if it was the above knee and they didn't have bracing. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Um, quick follow-up to that. And yeah. it, I just don't want to assume the answer. So is there a specific reason you all chose injuries above the T10 level? Is that because lower level injuries are more likely to regain walking function or? It had a, a bit to do with more of like an upper motor neuron injury um, so that we knew that, that that's what we were um, dealing with and, and making uh, changes potentially. Makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So let's look at your study design. Let's get into the specifics of the interventions that both the the both groups used and tell us a little bit more sure. about that in detail. Um, so this was a randomized crossover study. So that means that there's two arms, those two interventions, uh, impairment-based versus task-specific. So when you have a crossover study, each participant is their own control. So they get each of the of the interventions. It's just randomized to whichever which one that they get first. And so if somebody came in and they were randomized and they started the task specificity training first, they did up to 20 hours, 20 sessions that were one hour in length, and they had to do it within six weeks. And then at the end of that um, training, they did a, a post-test and then we waited a month and then they came back and then did their baseline testing for the second. And then they did the non-specific or the impairment-based training and then did their uh, post-testing. And so I think uh, what I really enjoy about a lot of the studies that we've been doing out of the lab, it's one-hour sessions. It's to mimic outpatient rehab, like what is really applicable to clinical practice, right? So if somebody came in and we started the session and they needed to go to the restroom, well, that's just part of it. You know, there's other things going on. The equipment's not going right. You know, that's still your hour. So we're still held to that, you know, how it is really in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so we wanted to make sure too, between those two treatment arms, that there was at least a month of a, of a washout session. 
So we were looking at these two different types of interventions, right? So task specificity, walking training versus impairment-based. And so we wanted to also look at intensity. So we made intensity the same across both our arms. And so we were looking at high intensity, at least a 70% of a heart rate reserve and an RPE of at least 15. And I think one thing that's important to note is when we look at um, training parameters for high intensity, we're not basing it off of their max heart rate during the graded treadmill test. And you'll find this with people that can't motorically move their body, they can't drive their cardiovascular system. And so when you look at um, what we're doing, we're basing it off of their heart rate reserve based off of their age. Um, because they have the more, there's more capacity for their cardiovascular system when they're able to show during a greater treadmill test. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking at high intensity kind of across research also, mm-hmm. how, where, how are people basing that, that heart rate, high intensity versus moderate intensity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then to get into the specifics of the two different, uh, training paradigms, So we look at the task specificity training. So it's walking training. And so for us, it's a protocol because you want to make sure that you're controlling, you're doing the things that you say you're doing. Um, So for us, it was 20 minutes on the treadmill. 10 minutes were forward walking. 10 minutes was variable um, context. So backwards, forwards, uphill, letting go, obstacles, uh, you name it, we've probably done it. Mm -hmm. Um, Stairs, also within some variable context, backwards, sideways, um, skipping a step, no hands, and then overground for 10 minutes. So we're looking at um, 40 minutes of walking training within an hour session. We were targeting their biomechanical deficit. So when we're looking at, can they swing? How is their stance? How's their propulsion? And how's their postural stability? And so we were able to target each person's deficit. So if somebody had more difficulty with swing, but stance was great, well, then we focus on swing and and usually propulsion because almost everybody is slow. Um, But if it's really like a balance issue, then you're, you're, you're looking at those types of subcomponents. We were not concerned with normalizing walking patterns. And then when we look at the impairment-based training, we looked at 10 minutes of lower extremity strengthening. Again, focusing on where are they weak? What are the things that we need to improve to help their walking function? Balance for 10 to 15 minutes, aerobic training for 10 minutes, and transfer training five to 10 minutes. So non-walking tasks, but still targeting um, those higher intensities of heart rate and RPE during both arms of the interventions. Excellent. For your strengthening in the um, impairment-based, were you guys using um, like machine-based? Were you doing, what did that look like? Uh, I feel like uh, if you look at some of the videos, it looks pretty crazy. So like (laughs) um, we are using machines. You'll see people having a lot of um, spasticity because they're Mm -hmm. working so hard. Um, Again, we might be doing like step ups, but we've got weights and they got a weighted vest also, you know, mm-hmm. just really dependent on on where they were and how they presented with what we could do as far as strengthening, but still pushing heart rate, pushing RPE. So it was not just three sets of 10. Right. Very whatever. Neat. Gotcha. Right. Cool. Yeah. And that was broken up in more like a circuit type fashion where they went from one that's a great point um, because 
what, when we get to the results part, it was really hard to keep heart rates up when you do impairment-based strategies, even when we're like, they've got 25 pounds weight of vest and they've got 10 pounds on each leg and they're doing sit to stand and lay down and stand up. And so there are some things that are a little easier to get heart rates up versus others. So we would need to employ like a circuit-based type training, right? So gosh, we might do a couple minutes of some strengthening throw in some balance for a little bit back to, you know, just really trying to, to keep heart rates and intensities up. And it, it's a challenge, mm-hmm. even when you're just going for it <laughs> with willing well, participants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into the exciting stuff then. Let's talk about the, yeah. the results. So um, what did you guys find from the study? And then what were some limitations that you guys found, found yourself encountering? Sure. So our main primary outcomes were peak treadmill speed and fast speed over ground. So when we looked at the analysis, um, we had an alpha of 0.025 because we had two primary outcomes. And then secondary outcomes were self-selected speed over ground, six-minute walk test, the Berg, five times sit to stand, the ABC, um, and then there's a peak recumbent stepper test power and I'll mm-hmm. explain this one just a little bit. You guys know the new step. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we did that um, without using arms. And so there's a protocol that you use um, and they have. there's a cadence that somebody needs to um, maintain. And then you increase the resistance every minute. And then it stops when they're like, I can't do it anymore. Or they can't keep that cadence up. Okay. So just keep that in mind um, as we go through some of the results. So... Um, what we found uh, for the peak treadmill speed, for fast velocity, and the six-minute walk test, it was there was a significant change from baseline to post between um, for the task specificity group. So when you look at the graph, they have a really nice incline. And then when you look at the impairment base, it's a very tiny incline or or not, it was a not significant change. So those walking functions didn't change in the impairment based group. And then there was also um, significance when you look between the groups too. So there was a significant time versus group interaction also. Self-selected speed really didn't change um, between, that wasn't significant for either group. And so it makes you think about capacity versus, you know, what are you comfortable doing? And, and where is it? Do we help to then make those changes in community? Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, we made some really great changes, but then did we really make changes out, outside life? We have stepping data. We haven't analyzed it yet. So it'd be interesting to see between those two groups. Then what did they do in the community before the interventions and after? So we had step watches on them um, during the, the, t- the, um, the off times before and after. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, when we look at like fidelity of the interventions, and we've talked about it a little bit. So when we were looking at, um, you know, one group is really doing a lot of walking training, task specificity, the other is impairment based. And so we wanted to make sure, are there differences in stepping during each session? There definitely was, that was a mm-hmm. significant difference. Heart rates were different, we wanted them to be the same. But as we talked about, it is really hard to do that. Right. But RPEs were the same. And then the other thing that was interesting is that the recumbent stepping power got better in the impairment-based group and not the test specificity, 
one thing of note is that we did the new stuff a lot for the aerobic conditioning. So right. these, these guys in the parent base, they were like, yeah, here we go. So they got better at the thing that they were practicing. Mm-hmm. There really was uh, no differences in the Berg, the five times sit to stand between the groups, um, the ABC. So in, another interesting thing, um, the ABC was better in the task specificity group, but we also had more falls in that group also mm-hmm. um, without injury. We did have a couple drivers of the falls. We had a couple people that fell often. Mm-hmm. Um so it just uh, brought up this conversation of, all right, do we do we need to have some conversations with people? Because they're like, yeah, I can do this. And then, right. you know, again, like when you're training somebody versus like capacity, you know, having mm-hmm. some, some good conversations around that. So um, I think for some of the limitations, you know, we had a smaller sample size. Um, we had 17. And when you look at a crossover design, it helps with the efficiency. So it helps with your power, but you have some potential, you know, crossover. There might be some carryover. The interventions were incredibly different, but mm-hmm. when we ran the stats, um, taking out the the second half, there was still significance within those, um, the, the fast velocity, peak treadmill speed, and the six minute. So you know, it's, it's there again, the power isn't, you know, I mean, the, the sample size was smaller. And then the other thing that was hard was just getting heart rates up. So we feel like we, we were really pushing people, but you know, heart rate wasn't there, but RPE was. So. Yes. It's very funny when you say that about, um, their, their capacity versus what they're doing, Mm -hmm. because I I find in spinal cord injury, you have as within any diagnosis, but you have two types of people, you know, you've got your very cautious and then you got your wild child. Right. So I, Mm -hmm. it it is, it's a conversation and it's tricky to have with each, each client, but about what we're doing in therapy, isn't necessarily what I want you doing in your um, independent life outside of therapy, but then also we want them carrying forward faster walking Mm -hmm. speeds and all of these things that we hope are the effect of the intervention that we're providing. So it is a very funny balance of how we um, lay that out to our clients. So it's, it's interesting. You guys find the same thing because in clinical practice, we're definitely trying to find the right ways to have that conversation. For sure. And I wonder too, you know, some of these people have had their injury for quite some time. So when we look at the average, you know, there's about four years post injury, Mm -hmm. you know, how much is habit? Right. You know, again, like where, and that's the the conversation to have, right? Is like, where can we go from here? You know, you can make all these changes in the clinic and, you know, mm-hmm. oh, this is doing it. But then what are you, how can you help them take that into the community and help that type of a thing? You know, do you still need, do you still need to use your wheelchair for community type mobility? You're going fast enough. You've got the endurance. Like, can you start to transition into more walking? Yeah, sounds like some yeah. great follow-up uh, work for your group to get. Yeah, it's always that. the question. That's always the question. But you're right, the real-life ap- uh, applicability of all the hard work that is happening in the clinic. Oh, Did no. What would you say was the most surprising um, finding for you in the study? The recumbent stepping power was surprising, <laughs> honestly. None of us expected that. We're like, oh, oh. well, they did... They did um, they did practice. I think also the thing that was when you look at the graphs in the paper, mm-hmm. it's very evident that like the impairment based did nothing for walking outcomes at all. And so I think um, 
when I go back to like what my training was a thousand years ago, um, what a lot of clinicians do, right? Like if you look out in your clinics and you see what people are doing, there's still a lot of impairment-based strategies, right? Um, we work on balance with walking because you tend to fall when you're walking. It's, it's mm-hmm. It doesn't happen as often when you're standing still. So, you know, it's not like we're not addressing these impairments, right? We're, we're working on functional strength. They're going up and down stairs, you're, but you're putting it into a functional context. And so I mm-hmm. think this paper and the study really hits home the importance of function and like practicing the function and doing the thing that they need to do, doing it a lot, working mm-hmm. hard at it and letting them make mistakes and then making corrections. Yes. That is one of the things, Jenny, that I really appreciate the most from your group and all the hard work you guys do is just the, the, the direct relationship to clinic and how yeah. that is yeah. um, very relatable. It's not, it doesn't right. feel as lab based. I'm reading all of the research that's coming out um, from from your your right. group. So we as as everyday clinicians really really appreciate <laughs> that um, piece of it because it's yeah it's important to the consumers that we can take the interventions and then apply them in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's doable. You don't have to have a lot of like really crazy, super expensive equipment. You you can get it done. You need harness systems for sure, but that's become much more common within most um, rehab settings or I don't know about outpatient as much, but you know, there are, there's equipment out there that's doable. It's not hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to do this. Um, But I think too, the other thing that really has kind of hit home is just the importance of um, looking at like a fit principle, right? Like what is your how are you dosing your patient? What are you doing during your session? Am I doing a bunch of different things or am I focused in on something? And I think uh, it's important to look at interventions that can give you the most bang for your buck. And then what can I get the most out of a session that would affect a lot of different things, right? It's not as researched with spinal cord, but in stroke, like when you do high intensity, like transfers are going to get better. Other things are going to get better. I don't have to practice those kind of lower level type task versus, um, and I don't have to spend time on that because I know it'll come along. I feel like it probably would for spinal cord as well. If, you, if you're looking at doing something harder and some of those easier things can, can come along and that's just basically having an education um, with your patient, you know, shared decision-making. Look, you want to do this? Great. Here's how I know to get you there. Can you, are you willing to do this with me? We're going to, I know you have other concerns but walking is very important. And when you look about quality of life and community access, that's a, that's a big deal for a lot of people. And so, yeah, I want to be able to do some of these other things better. I want to get, be able to get up from the floor. You know, those are important things, but then having this realistic notion of, I have a limited amount of time with somebody. I know if I can get them stronger and I can get them to go up and down stairs easier, probably can get them off the floor easier also. Absolutely. So just looking at those types of things and being really like smart consumers of evidence, but also helping our patients to to know like, it's okay to focus in on something. I'm not negating some of these other concerns that you have, but let's look at this wisely and really focus in on the things that are going to make a biggest impact for you in this small amount of time that I have you for. 
Absolutely. I love the way you put it. It's it's getting a bang for your buck. Um, we yeah. have a limited amount of time, a limited amount yeah. of sessions with them. How can we get you to achieve your goals in the quickest way possible? Yeah. The other things work, we're... but research has been showing consistently that this task-specific practice mm -hmm. um, and then motor control-based theories, you you get better what you at what you do, right? At what you practice. Yeah. So and that's I why do it a lot. Jenny's yeah. on the, the moving forward task. <laughs> right. I was just going to do a little plug for the Evidence Elevates uh, campaign. We've got um, we've got some things on there. Um, there's several podcasts, but we've got some documents to help with. There's an evidence pyramid that talks about, you know, how do you look at research? What are the the types of articles to look at? You know, am I going to put as much weight on a case series versus a, a randomized control trial? you know, how to, how to look at those types of things. And then we've got to try this instead of this type of a, of an, um, some documents. Um, you know, we've got some more things coming out too, but. Well, we really exciting. appreciate it. We are using it in the <laughs> clinic. So keep up the heart. I love it. Well, thank, Jen, you. thank you so much for joining us today. Your work really influences what we're doing in clinic. And we really um, appreciate all of the hard work that you and, and all the folks at the lab are um, giving us in, in clinical practice and for our clients. So thank we're you. thankful for having you on Discus. Is there anything you want to leave with our listeners today? Um, oh, of course. I haven't really thought so much about this, but I, I think it's something that we've already talked about you know, really choosing wisely the things that you're having your patients do and really, you know, have good decision, sorry, discussions with them, you know, so that they know that you're an expert and that the things that you say are important, but then for that help them to get on board too and, and really, you know, have a collaborative effort, you know, and just be honest with them, but, but really help them to get where they want to go. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's going to be the end for our chat today. So thank you to all our uh, listeners for joining us. Again, my name is Kristen Cezak. And I'm Uzair Hamad, your host. Until next time, guys. Thanks a lot, Jenny. Thank you.